The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. U.S. stocks slump after Fauci and the Fed set a somber tone. I've got your complete markets wrap and Dr. Fauci testifying virtually to the Senate. He's warning, warning about that early reopening could, quote, set you back and cause death. Deaths. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease official, warning against reopening the economy too soon. But are the states going to listen? He says that immunity to COVID-19 virus has yet to be proven. It was a day of Fauci and the Fed. And we are going to check in on all fronts as the House Democrats unveil a three trillion dollar aid bill with cash. Code cash, folks, for states, three trillion dollars of a virus relief bill. We have every angle covered. Small business, Mike Jenks, general manager of W.S. Jenks & Son, the oldest hardware store in Washington, D.C., is going to give us the small business angle. Brendan Buck, partner at Seven Letter and former spokesman and advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan, gives us all of the politics from Capitol Hill. Mark Shriver, president of the Save the Children Action Network, is going to tell us about how teachers and Hollywood are rallying together. But we're going to begin with a controversial technology topic on contact tracing. How do we stop the virus? How does contact tracing, have you heard this? Using artificial intelligence. How do they do that in order to get the data? Forget testing. Well, don't forget testing. But using testing and contact tracing to prevent the spread of the disease. We've got one of the top artificial technology intelligence people uh, calling in, Dr. Neil Robertson. He's the chief technology officer and co-founder of AnyVision. He's going to talk about artificial intelligence for us. A complete uh, wrap on what Dr. Anthony Fauci told House Democrats, or I'm sorry, the Senate today, as House Democrats unveiled a $3 trillion aid bill with cash for the states. And just to give a, a quick A quick recap, Anthony Fauci uh, told the Senate Health Committee on Tuesday that he's concerned about the cities and states reopening without reaching quote-unquote checkpoints outlined by the administration and guidelines to help them decide when it is safe. He said, quote, I feel if that occurs, there is a real risk that you will trigger an outbreak that you might not be able to control. In fact, paradoxically, 
it will set you back, not only leading to some suffering and death that could be avoided, but it could even set you back on the road on trying to get economic recovery that would turn the clock back rather than going forward, end quote. There were some contentious points on Dr. Anthony Fauci's uh, testimony. Uh, Senator Patty Murray, the panel's ranking Democrat, said that, quote, the Trump administration's response to this public health emergency so far has been a, a disaster all its own. Murray went on to say that there were delays and missteps. And, you know, look, I mean, that's it was a partisan hearing. It was virtual. Uh, but it was really the first time that lawmakers have heard from from uh, from Fauci. Kelly Leffler of Georgia. She's a Republican senator. Uh, she actually said that all of the witnesses denied what she portrayed as been an inaccurate media report that they had strained dealings with Trumps. And she said that there's been uh, no confrontational relationship between her office and the president, which is interesting because she's been all up in the news. Uh, chairman of the committee, Alexander, Lamar Alexander, he, he went on uh, to say uh, that he's in self-quarantine, actually, out of an abundance of caution. So, I mean, look, it was... I'm not sure we got anything new out of it uh, in terms of developments, but it was a historic moment in the sense that Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, saying don't reopen too fast because it could have the reverse health effects. There's been a lot of talk in the news, and this is why he's our first guest tonight. His name is Dr. Neil Robertson, chief technology officer and co-founder of AnyVision. And there's been a lot of talk in the news about how 5G is going to be impacted by this, how artificial intelligence in the uh, technology sector might be able to help trace the spread of the virus. And it's also, as we talk about it through the American prism, uh, you know, there are concerns about civil liberties and rights. And so I, I want to have him on, Dr. Neil Robertson, who was profiled in the New York Times uh, just within the last week within the last couple of days and the headline is israeli army's idea lab aims at a new target saving lives and i read this in the times dr robertson and i thought i gotta get him on the program because contact tracing is all anybody's talking about it came up a little bit in the hearing today and i want to give you the opportunity to explain to americans what precisely it is Sure, Kevin. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Um, now, we want to explain that um, intelligent computer vision can be used to make the world safer and more secure and accessible. And as you mentioned, um, face recognition has uh, has, uh, has had some controversy in the past, but you know we're prioritizing uh, our best-in-class recognition technology um, around the need to to get businesses open, to to make hospitals secure. Um, and to enhance safety and convenience. And, and how that uh, has manifested itself in reality is that um, we've been working with hospitals to, to help them do uh, contact tracing of individuals who, who are known to carry the coronavirus. And, um, you know, the, the uniqueness of this is that um, perfect knowledge of who, who's in contact with who and uh, when they've been in contact and for how long um, is what's generally required, it appears, according to experts, to um, flatten the curve and um, you know, ultimately Im improve uh, the quality of life for people. And so, you know, in a nutshell, um, our recognition technology enables uh, hospitals to, to, in particular, Sheba Hospital in Israel, where we're, where we're running this system, to identify 
uh, with with great accuracy. You know who uh, who's been in contact with with other people who who are known to carry the virus, and it's only facial recognition technology um, that, that provides this um, this certainty and this, and this ability. Um, if we look at other attempts to do contact tracing. Um, certainly here in the UK, it's reliant on uh, self-identification, on self-reporting, on the use of mobile phones. And we're seeing that the uptake of that, that is around 60%, which is nowhere near high enough to, to, to make the technology really have a big okay. impact on, on suppressing the virus. Doc, and, Dr. Uh, Neil so, Robertson's yeah, on the phone. He's the chief technology officer and co-founder of AnyVision. So I understand the benefits of it. What do you say to critics who say, hey, wait a minute, this is like 1984 out of George Orwell? Yeah. Sure. Well, I, I say, you know, I, I share I share concerns about the misuse of technology, you know, everywhere. And uh, look, AnyVision has a, lo- a long history of uh, ensuring privacy and working within within strong ethical principles. And what I would say about this uh, in particular is that, you know, we work mainly with businesses to provide access to services. And uh, in particular, like touchless access is, is a big market for us. And that's going to be huge um, in, in the current uh, uh, the current climate that we live in, with the spread of uh, germs and so on. But in particular, when you're working with a business, you know, facial recognition uses data that's already available to the business. It's the photograph that's on your um, your pass card. There, there's nothing new that you, that, that, that uh, anyone's been asked to give up. Um, and within the confines of that business, you know, there's a, there's a circle of trust. So we provide an on-premises service that's uh, very secure. Not it's not attached to external networks. Only the business has access to the to the data on the on the list of uh, the gallery of people who are who are working in that business. And um, you know, there's intense and and um, leading cybersecurity yeah. in our in our servers and systems. So you know, really yeah. a leakage. Is extremely unlikely, and I think I so find long it as fascinating. Them- I find it fascinating, Dr. Neil Robertson. He is one of the leading uh, individuals who is part of this new industry of contact tracing. So many questions. I very much appreciate your time. He's the chief technology officer and co-founder of AnyVision. Coming up, we check in with a small business right here in the nation's capital, one of the oldest hardware stores inside the Beltway. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Lots of uh, lots of local headlines to get through, uh, especially with now we've got some developments from Governor Northam, Democrat of Virginia. Did you see this? Northern Virginia is going to likely be excluded from the state's initial reopening, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia are reporting. So, look, I mean, Arlington County, Northern Virginia, uh, they're going to be excluded from the easing, the easing of the restrictions. This is Dr. Anthony Fauci was testifying virtually of, on uh, in the Senate for the Senate Health Committee, and he says you can't reopen too fast because if you do, it could be a total cluster i'm paraphrasing uh reading from the bloomberg from the washington post rather john d hardin reports quote northern virginia has averaged nearly double the number of daily coronavirus related deaths in recent days than the rest of the state in a region that contains about one-third of its population data analyzed by the washington post shows the state recorded an average of 25 fatalities daily 
over the most recent seven days. And then we get this. So that's what's going on in Virginia. Then Ovetta Wiggins in the WAPO is reporting that uh, hundreds have testified about Maryland's troubled jobless claim systems. Uh, and one by one, laid off workers told a joint legislative panel about the frustrations they have endured trying to get benefits under the state's new unemployment benefit claim system. We've talked a lot about on this program about how small businesses have been impacted. Yesterday, we had uh, the founder and CEO of the legendary iconic Cafe Milano, uh, Franco Nuchese. Uh, we've talked to Billy Martin of Martin's Tavern, Virginia Ali of Bench Chili Bowl. I wanted to check in with uh, one of the, I think it's the oldest hardware store in the district. And I got the general manager. So we are going to check in now with Mike, the general manager of W.S. Jenks and Son. Mike, I take it you are the son of W.S. Jenks and Son. Uh, no, so actually um, the original family um, uh my grandfather bought the business from them in 1952. Wow. Um, so they are, yeah, so our, I'm third generation uh, in our family who's, who's a part of the business. And my dad is, is currently the owner and operator. It's incredible. It's an incredible, incredible story. Uh, how have you been impacted? How has W.S. Jenkins' son, the hardware store, how has that been impacted by COVID-19? Um, yeah, so I would, you know, on a... We, we do a lot of commercial and uh, government business, and that generally will equate to 60 to 70 percent of our business. That's taken a, a pretty significant hit. Um, but on the retail side, we've actually seen a, a pretty positive increase. So we're, um, you know, we we're, have good traffic in the store. Uh, we're very responsibly operating. We've seen April 20 over April 19, about 30 percent increase in retail sales. Um, but total sales for the entire store, and that includes the retail, you know, so the commercial, government, everything else, uh, we were down about 25%. So, um, you know, on, on one on one hand, you know, we're, we're excited about the, the retail gains that we've made. Um, and on the other hand, we're, we're coping with um, some un, unexpected uh, loss of, of significant revenue. So, I mean, you hear that and you hear Fauci testifying nationally and then you got Mayor Bowser. How, is, how has it been in terms of, of what, you, the, the, what you've been getting, the support you've been getting or not getting from both the local government at the mayor, mayoral level and the federal government uh, from your perspective as a small business owner or a small business manager? Well, you know, I think we're, um, you know, we're, we're very fortunate that we've been able to stay open, you know, and in, in doing so, we've been very responsible. Um, you know, I think us and similar businesses, we demonstrated uh, it's possible to remain open during the crisis and, and, and be responsible in a way that mitigates risk for employees and, and customers. Um, you know, I would hope, you know, I heard you're leading into this conversation talking about the governor of Virginia. Um, you know, I would hope that governors and, and mayors could be a little bit more surgical uh, in how they're treating businesses right now. I mean, if you look at, at small business, um, us as an example, similar retailers who are allowed to stay open because we're considered essential uh, businesses. I mean, we're we're able to responsibly and efficiently operate. I think of you know, there's a great a great art gallery in Old Town run by uh, Todd Healy. It's called Gallery Lafayette or Solid State Books, which is a bookstore on H yeah. Street. Um, you know, those are businesses that could very easily uh, make slight changes to their operations. Um, 
and they could open their doors and then they could also, you know, let obviously let customers in and they could do it in a way that, that protects their employees and protects so their what customers do you need and to allows hear? them to So what do you need to hear as someone who's on the front lines of this, as someone who's managing employees on the front lines of this? Do you need guidelines? Do you need standards? We had a lawmaker on from the other week, uh, from the from the from the bipartisan problem solvers caucus who, who released the standards and said small businesses need to have standards. They need to have they need to have the the plexiglass standards for the between customers sure. and whatnot, and and you know you need to have social distancing markings. What do you, as an actual small business in the in the the district, what do you need from government? Sure, if they if they wanted to give us standards that we would need to abide by, I'm, I'm I'd be happy to follow them. I think in in our case and a lot of ca- a lot of similar businesses, we sort of. There wasn't a lot of guidelines from the outset. We were allowed to stay open. We we created the standards. I mean, they should actually be coming to us and asking, what do you think is a, is a good way? How are you able to operate effectively? How are you able to make it so your customers feel safe and coming into your establishment? They should be coming to us, I think, and asking for uh, good policies and procedures on, on how to move forward. So other businesses um, who are similar to ours who aren't allowed to stay open right now, um, you know, they could could follow the the standards that businesses like ours have set. I, I would hope instead of government mandating what we should be doing, I think they should be asking us, the ones who have successfully done it, what is the correct approach to making sure that your employees, your customers, and everyone else who comes in the building. And no one's safe. reached out to you guys. No one's, no one's reached out. Um, we've had, I, we've had conversations. Um, we, we were proactive about them. I mean, nobody's come to us specifically, but yeah, we have, we, we've talked to, to members of, of city council in DC. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know how much they've, they've listened, but I, I would say that if they are listening, um, if you're trying to figure out what is the best procedures to move forward with, I would, I would ask small businesses. A lot of us were able to change how we're operating overnight. And I think we're doing a very, very good job. Um, yeah. Of, of running a business in the COVID-19 era. Yeah. All right, Mike, general manager of W.S. Jenks & Son, which is the oldest hardware store in Washington, D.C. It was uh, founded in 1866. Did I get that right? Yes, yeah. sir. Wow. Thanks so much for checking in with us, and thanks so much for all the work that you guys are doing. Coming up, we go back to Capitol Hill. Brendan Buck, I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And coming up, we're going to check in with Mark Shriver. Mark Shriver, he's the president of the Save the Children Action Network. What are they doing to help kids? What are they doing? They've gotten celebs. Do you see that? Jennifer Gardner. She's been reading books for kids, so we're going to get an update on the life and times of Mark Shriver. But first we go to another DC insider, Brendan Buck, partner at Seven Letter and a former spokesman and advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. You know, the Democrats today, Brendan, first of all, how are you? I haven't talked to you since before all this went down. You holding up okay, buddy? 
Yeah, I'm doing all right. It's good to hear your voice. Yeah, I appreciate that, Brendan, because most people don't feel that way, and most people would prefer not to hear Kev's voice. So it's always nice to hear from a good friend. House Democrats unveiled $3 trillion aid bill with cash for states. Is this going to go anywhere, or is this just a messaging bill? And why would Speaker Pelosi, I have the inkling it's a messaging bill, why would she make a messaging bill um, in a polarizing time right now when the last round of economic stimulus fights, they weren't as significant battles. Yeah, I mean, it's a messaging bill, but I think it's, it's something else even more than that. And I think it, it's member management, um, meaning she needed to give her members something to stand for, something to be for. They felt largely cut out of the process of the previous bills, and there was just some pent-up demand. So uh, it's not going anywhere, obviously. Uh, she knows that, it, and it's largely, I think, disconnected from whatever the end of the day legislation is. Um, from, you know, wh- whatever wherever they end up, whether that's uh, in a couple weeks or a couple months from now, I, I don't know that this really has any any meaning for it. I think this was just pent up demand that they needed to uh, that they needed to to do something with. Um, I'm really concerned, though, like where they come together at the end of the day on this. I, there's not a lot of overlap. You, look, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff in there, but there isn't a whole lot of stuff that you see Republicans want either in that bill or just in general. So I'm, I'm really interested to see what brings them together. What is the, what is the Republican ask that they're going to trade to get some of those other things? I think we've got a long road to go on this. And, and you know, the real possibility that there isn't another bill. So, I mean, the very real possibility that there isn't another bill as this is there's been a patchwork bet at best, putting it as such, uh, of a reopening strategy at the, on the state-by-state level. That in and of itself is, is confusing enough to try to figure out what's open and what, what's not, what's closed, when are they phase one, phase two for all 50 states. It's been a headache to try to track it all. Meanwhile, as you just alluded to, how does Speaker Pelosi, from a even from a from a from a purely procedural standpoint, how does she even whip this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the reporting is that she's been doing a lot of legwork on this, making a lot of calls, talking to all the the right people that they need to talk to. But I got to tell you, it is astonishing to see legislation of that size be dropped on a Tuesday and going to pass on a, be passed on a Friday without anybody being able to have a face to face meeting about it. Um, you know, we used to have to pass, you know, maybe a trillion dollar bill that was like a must pass bill. And that was super hard to be able to pull off. And usually, you, you know, you can count on bipartisan support for this. This is quite the feat. Um, you know, it, it's easy when everybody gets everything they want. Um, maybe the progressive caucus would say they haven't gotten everything they want. Um, but this is a, a breathtaking bill uh, in, in its scope and its ambition. Um, you know, hat tip to her if she, if she can pull that off again. I don't think it really means much in terms of where we end up at the end of the day. Um, but this is uh, historic in, in how big it is. So, meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said, not so fast. He doesn't want to give a blank check to uh, individuals, uh, to to states, rather. He doesn't want to give a blank check to states, uh, especially when we don't know when things are going to have to reopen, when they're not going to reopen, phase one, phase two. Where where is the Senate right now uh, in terms of putting together the foundation of even uh, of a next round of stimulus? 
Yeah, obviously there's a lot of fatigue from the previous rounds of legislation. Uh, you know, I think they were all a little shaken by how quickly the first round of the Paycheck Protection uh, Program ran out, and they had to uh, re-up that. Um, you know, and, and the numbers just got really high really fast. One challenge for Republicans in general is just the restlessness of the Republican base, voters out there, um, you know, even the, the the things that would normally bring them back to the table, like the demand for the PPP program is falling off. Um, and what it feels like is the Republican solution to everything very quickly is just going to be open back up. As in, we don't need to do anything. The solution is you open back up. Um, I, I think that's a little sim- simplistic and, and maybe misses the mark a little bit, um, but it's clearly where they're going. Um, but at the end of the day, this is going to come down to uh, the White House. You know, if if they make a, a political decision, and you know these things are political, that more needs to be done. That there are states that he, the president is going to lose in November because they are not doing enough. I think he'll be able to motivate McConnell to sort of come off of his uh, what you know it could just be a negotiating position, but right now it seems like very little interest in actually doing anything. Brendan Buck's on the line. He's a partner at Seven Letter. Previously, he was a senior advisor to former Speaker House, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. You mentioned the 2020 election campaign and some of those battleground states. The president likely or could be headed to Allentown, Pennsylvania, in the second half of this week to tour a plant. He was previously in Arizona. Uh, touring another Honeywell plant. Uh, Take us to the battleground states, Michigan, Wisconsin, to some extent Pennsylvania. How have you noticed this playing in the field? Uh, Yeah, the the obvious big development that has changed probably from last time and and just in in recent months has been the president's slippage with with older Americans. Um, That's been remarkable, and we haven't talked about that enough. And folks, if you've been following the polls what Brendan is alluding to is this dip of support, not amongst the base of the Republican Party, but amongst senior citizens. Explain that to us and how it relates to these battleground states. Uh, well, for you know, at the most basic level, uh, older Americans vote. They come out and they vote, um, and they're the most reliable voting block that there is. And there's, so there's a lot of votes that they are to be had. And if you and the president did relatively well with them last time around. And so if his if a large group of his uh, coalition uh, is slipping, that that's a big problem for him. Um, you know, it's I don't want to necessarily dive too deep into to causes for it, but you have to think that that a lot of it is related to this response and that older Americans are more concerned about the health uh, aspect of this than, than anybody else. Obviously, it, you know, it disproportionately affects them with death rates and complications that you've seen. And if there is a perception that the president is being somewhat cavalier in the health, uh, public health aspect of it, you could see an obvious correlation to a, a slippage among seniors. Um, and if that, uh, you know, bears itself out in some of these states that have a lot of older voters like a Wisconsin or Michigan or a Pennsylvania, that could be trouble. You know, it's a new poll out today from Marquette University in Wisconsin. It's got Joe Biden up on the president, only, you know, 3%. But, uh, you know, if, if he loses Wisconsin, if he loses Michigan, and you're even seeing down in Florida, which has been, you know, a relatively solid red state for the president. But there's obviously a lot of older people in, in Florida. And uh, if he were to slip so bad down there and, and lose Florida, that would be big trouble for us. So, I mean, 
no one's really seen Joe Biden. I mean, he's given some interviews. He was on Good Morning America, etc. But no one's really seen him. There doesn't. There isn't obviously a traditional campaign. So what does it say that 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 Biden's doing pretty well in in these states and and Trump is is slipping? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately this election was all whether this happened or not. This election was always going to be about Donald Trump, um, and you know. It's never ideal to be, you know, stuck in your basement during a campaign, but also, you know, it really doesn't change the dynamic that everyone's eyes are on the president and you're probably going to be casting your vote one way or the other on on whether you approve or disapprove of the president. And Joe Biden was, as a candidate, is not someone who's really trying to rock the boat. He's not trying to offer his own revolution. Uh, He really does want this to be a referendum. And in a very strange way, this whole situation is playing right into that. Um, You know, I assume they would like to have a little more control over over their their destiny here. And it's an interesting irony that the president's ability to respond to this will sort of determine how long Joe Biden is locked in his basement. Um, But at the end of the day, I think he's happy to have the focus on the president in the Rose Garden talking about these things day after day. Brendan Buck, partner at Seven Letter, and of course, the former senior advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. Thanks so much for coming in and checking in with us, Brendan. Uh, coming up, we check in with Mark Shriver. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Let's mix it up a little bit. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. So much really just heavy news, heavy, heavy news, especially today. You got Dr. Anthony Fauci testifying virtually on the Hill, telling the Senate, hey, can't reopen too fast. You got mixed messages coming on reopening in the DMV region. Governor Northam, Democrat, Virginia, saying Northern Virginia not going to be reopening like the other parts of the states are. We still don't know what Bowser's going to do, Mayor Mariel Bowser's going to do here in Washington, D.C. We should get an update by the end of the week uh, in terms of reopening and the social distancing. And then you got what's going on in Maryland, some reopenings, but school closures and whatnot. It's heavy, folks. It's heavy. The market whipsawing, trade tensions with China. I need some hope. I need some hope. And so I was watching Morning Show just the other day, and I saw some hope. I saw Mark Shriver. And I thought, that's the guy who wrote one of my favorite books, My Search for the Real Pope Francis. It's a great book. It's about Pope Francis. Who am I to judge? An iconic line for people like me. And I thought Mark Shriver's talking about uh, Save the Children Action Network, and he's actually bringing together Republicans and Democrats. And then I check in with Senator Joni Ernst, Republican from Iowa, and she's tweeting out, about how she's leading a bipartisan group of senators pushing for additional support for our child care community as folks combat the virus. Mark Shriver, of course, is behind this. Anywhere there's uh, something going on with the Save the Children Action Network, there he is. Mark, thanks so much for, for joining us on the program. Thank you very much, Kevin. That's a very nice introduction. I don't think I should talk at all. Just let you keep going. <laughs> no, my mom always told me I talked too much as a kid. Uh, well, well, you, got a, you got the right job then. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. <laughs> Tell me about what you guys are doing in this time of crisis uh, for, uh, for, the, for the kids. He's the president, by the way, of Save the, of Save the Children Action Network. Yes, thanks, Kevin. So, yeah, SCAN, uh, Save the Children Action Network, is the 501c4 
Um, it is the political arm or political advocacy arm for Save the Children, which, as you know, was started in 1919 in the UK, came to America in 1932, actually to deal with, uh, to try to feed children impacted by the, the Great Depression. Uh, and we are running programs all across the country now today. Um, the work that we do through Save the Children Action Network uh, is really to try to create a, a mobilization effort across America on behalf of children's needs here in the U.S., uh, including childcare, which is what Senator Ernst and uh, Senator Cinema are co-sponsor or introducing legislation around, or uh, submitting a letter rather about uh, trying to increase the amount of money, federal dollars, going into childcare. Um, so we we work all across the country. We have about 350,000 grassroots volunteers working on the childcare issue here in the United States, and also trying to increase the commitment for international aid for mothers and children all around the world. So that's what SCAN does, um, and we're trying to, as you said, work bipartisan, and there is a lot of bipartisan support both in D.C. but also in state governments for the importance of early childhood education, and child care falls under that banner. See, Mark, I mean, this is what I, I was just having. This is when I'm off air, when I'm off work, unplugged. One of the, the things that I say to my friends is I can't comprehend this. You know, I'm trying you know, I'm reporting on it. I'm interviewing people, but I cannot, I, I truthfully, I cannot compre- comprehend it. I come from a family of teachers. My mom, uh, a teacher, my sister, a teacher in Baltimore City Public Schools. And I hear what, what they do and it, 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 I, I'm speechless. And you right. hear right now kids all over the world, but let's focus on America for right now, that are going through just, you know, hell. And, what what is the what is the need, Mark, right now that you guys are because of COVID nineteen that you guys are just number one trying to address? Give us some like quick things. Well, Save the Children is uh, focused in rural America, and the needs uh, in rural America. I worked in Baltimore City for you know six years. Uh, it's completely different, almost country. Um, you know, if you're working in a public school in Baltimore, you can walk to that school. Uh, there's public transportation. If you're in rural America. Um, there aren't, you know, it's a bus ride. It's an hour bus ride. It's, you know, families don't have cars, can't afford gas if they do have cars to drive to the schools. So there's a whole different infrastructure issue going on in rural America than it is in urban settings or suburban settings. And they're, they're all bad. Uh, I would say in, in rural America, it's a real big challenge right now. So Save the Children programmatically is uh, supplementing the money that goes to public schools so that they can afford to put gas in trucks and buses to deliver food uh, to families. Uh, We're supplying educational resources because in rural America, you know, the broadband um, coverage is roughly 65%. In urban settings, it's 97%. Um, So we're, you know, trying to distribute 20th century learning tools Um, not 21st century, but 20th century learning tools in rural America. So we're doing that from a programmatic perspective, filling the bellies and the minds of kids. Uh, We're doing it in partnership with uh, No Kid Hungry, uh, which is started by Billy Shore and is doing great work across the country as well. Uh, From an advocacy perspective, that's what Senator Ernst and Senator Sima are asking the federal government uh, to invest in child care. And we just released a poll, savethechildrenactionnetwork.org. You can go and see the poll results, uh, where almost 90% of Americans believe that the federal government should support child care. Uh, and that's really early childhood education, as your mom and sister will tell you. The brain growth in those first uh, five years of life, 90% of your brain growth in the first five years of life. But we don't invest in child care and early education. 
but it cuts across political parties, uh, Kevin, and that's really important. Republicans and Democrats support it. And as I said, it's almost at 90%. And our pollsters, who are, again, Republicans and Democrats, had a great uh, article in um, Real Clear Politics the other day saying in their 40 years of polling, they've never... They have rarely seen an issue that is this good and that has much, this much bipartisan support. But kids don't vote, and they don't give political campaign contributions, and they don't honestly have a seat at the table. And that's why Save the Children Action Network was Teachers created six vote. years ago. And their parents vote. Mark Shriver's on the line, uh, president of Save the Children. And, you know, I, I just in sticking with, with COVID-19 and the, and the, you know, two minutes that we have left, it, you know, you hear about COVID-19 and kids who are uh, – in underserved communities, and they're at home, you know, just difficult situations. What has been the one, what has been the one COVID-19 cry for help that needs action now, immediately, yesterday, uh, that lawmakers really need to step up to the plate to address? I think it's, can I say two? I'm I'm going to say it. Go ahead, say two. It's we got to do better for our kids by food, and I mean uh, that a lot of schools are on such thin margins with their with their own tax bases that they don't have resources to feed kids in the summer, and there are literally children every summer that are you know food insecure. They don't they're starving, and this summer is going to be the longest summer we've ever faced. So you have huge education loss and you have huge food loss for a lot of these kids, and then you know for parents that are trying to go back to work. If you don't have child care, you, what, you can't go back to work. And the federal government is not invested in, you know, supporting child care businesses, which, again, are working on such thin margins. Um, so if your listeners are out there are interested in economic, you know, stimulation on, econo- on the economy, parents aren't going to go back to work if, they don't, if their child care is not open. And, uh, you know, schools are all closed. And that's, you know, there's uh, over six and a half million children under the age of five who are in regular child care uh, arrangements with a non-parent. Uh, and that's 1.5 million people doing that work. And those businesses, those child care businesses are shuttered. Wow. And the government has not been supporting them to the degree they, wow. they need to. So those Mark are two Shriver. big issues. Mark Shriver, thanks so much. President of Save the Children Action Network. Quick answer because we're going to run out of time. What's your favorite book? I mean, besides the one I wrote? <laughs> yeah, uh, the besides the one answer, you wrote. Uh, the easy answer is The Strength to Love by Martin Luther King. It's a collection of his sermons, and they are powerful and beautiful. Very good. I needed that today. All right, thank you very much to Mark Shriver, president of Save the Children Action Network. Call back in any time. Tell us what uh, what else you've got going on. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. Much more all throughout the week on coronavirus coverage. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.